Hello, and welcome again to another Conservative Historian podcast. This one entitled, Augustus, What History Has to Teach. The date, January 2021, and my name, Bell Abbas. As progressive history takes more and more of a role in our classrooms, especially as embodied by curricula such as the 1619 Project, something will have to be replaced. One of those curricula will more than likely be ancient history. In the environs of critical theory, what do Greeks and Romans have to teach us? They were, after all, oppressive slaveholders, extractors, and extortionists. And of course, the Jews, while studying ancient Judaism, may lend credibility to present-day Israel, and that will just not do. In a 2018 article published for the week, author Matthew Walther writes, quote, Last month, the organization that devises the so-called advanced placement tests around which the destinies of millions of children unfortunately revolve announced that it is considering a major change to the teaching of world history. This subject has been understood to mean exactly what its name suggests, the history of the world from the earliest extant records to the present day, the history of all people, everywhere, in all ages. From now on, according to the College Board, the world begins in about 1450, no doubt on Christopher Columbus's birthday. Anything that might be rumored to have taken place before then is content that the AP examination will no longer assess. Unquote. Walter goes on to write, quote, The proposed changes have not been universally applauded. As Professor Mary E. Weisner Hanks of the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, who was once in charge of the AP World History, History Curriculum herself, told the New York Times last week, quote, If you started in 1450, the first thing you'll talk about in terms of Africa is the slave trade. The first thing you'll talk about in terms of the Americas is people dying from smallpox and other things. Unquote. What Weisner Hank seems to miss is that's exactly the intention of that date. They want to start in 1450 because that's the best launching point for a denigration of American history. It is not surprising that the modern day academy would choose to view history through the lens of exploitation and grievance, nor is that 1450 date a surprise. That is the time when what would become the United States gained relevancy. For a group that preaches diversity, its views are actually incredibly narrow. Only the United States seems to matter, and the United States is terrible. The United States is a bad place. For those who believe that written history, such as myself, began sometime around 3500 BC, there is a lot more to learn. Not 20 years ago, one of the goals of history was to provide us with historical figures whose virtues and positive attributes could serve as a role model for a better life. But the concept of individual accomplishment in today's education takes a backseat to the idea of identity. I mean, after all, what could an African-American or a woman learn from a white male such as Abraham Lincoln? What could a poor person learn from the likes of $500 million worth Andrew Carnegie, even though he was raised in a poor household? To extol attributes of personal history is to acknowledge that individuals have agency, which goes against the prevailing dogma of critical theory that is infecting what I like to call big education. As I denigrate critical theory, let me be clear to define it. Quote, an approach to social philosophy that focuses on reflective assessment and critique 
of society and critique of culture to reveal and challenge power structures, unquote. Power structures, of course, being defined by race, gender, class, and imperialism. Thus, critical race theory becomes a challenge to American society itself, described as power being held by whites and denied to blacks. In critical race theory, the individual is subjugated to their identity, as it is in all critical theory. And a Martin Luther King Jr., Condoleezza Rice, Thomas Sowell, or a Robert Woodson, heck, even a Barack Obama, becomes impossible. The fact that these figures exist today is a complete anomaly, not an aspiration. If one digs deep enough behind the patina of critical theory, one finds Marxism. Not the Leninist version, but at the core of Marxism is a belief called determinism. And let's define that. Quote, the doctrine that all events, including human action, are ultimately determined by causes external to the will. Some philosophers have taken determinism to imply that individual human beings have no free will and cannot be held morally responsible for their actions, unquote. In original Marxist theory, Marx believed that the poor were governed by external forces, unable to rise. Critical theory took that doctrine and interposed race and gender to conclude that there are no life choices. Finish high school or not. Have a baby out of wedlock or not. Get married or not. Take drugs or not. Get a job and keep it or not. None of these choices matter. Only the color of your skin, the money you were born with, and the type of biology under your clothes. That is it. Now, I am not so doctrinaire to say that there is no influence on one's life by these factors. Of course there is. What I reject is that identity is the most crucial aspect of life. Never before in the history of humankind have there been more choices, especially in the United States. And I will continue to believe that the choices we make, which define us, should be influenced by the stories we read, the values we cherish, the attributes we adapt, and the figures we study. And even for the American-centric view, Rome has a lot to teach. Lessons range from the inspiration that the founders took from such writers as Cicero, all the way to the spoken language. In English, we have words such as alma mater and alibi that are direct Latin descendants, and other words including magnify or magnificent, derived from the Latin phrase magna. Even the word Africa came from the Romans. And even those, not necessarily myself, who believe in the constant teachings and preachings of multiculturalism. Well, let's start off with one simple culture, Hispanic or Latino culture. Where did Spanish come from? Spanish as a language is a direct descendant from Latin. That in and of itself would be a good reason to learn a little bit more about Roman history. And for the Romans, the greatest of them was Augustus Caesar. There were greater generals such as Gaius Marius or even Augustus's great uncle, Gaius Julius Caesar. There were better administrators, including emperors Vespasian or Diocletian. There were Romans with greater intellect, such as Cicero, and some who exhibited unwavering Republican virtues that I personally hold dear, such as Cato the Younger. He is actually the namesake of the Cato Institute, but Augustus stands above them all 
As one of the foremost historians of the Roman era, Adrian Goldsworthy, if you like Roman history, you should know this writer, writes in his Augustus, the first emperor, quote, he was the first emperor, the man who finally replaced a republic which had lasted half a millennium and with a veiled monarchy. The system he created gave the empire some 250 years of stability when it was more extensive and more prosperous than at any other time. In the third century, it faced decades of crisis and survived only after extensive reform. But even the Roman emperors who ruled from Constantinople until the 15th century felt themselves to be rightful successors to the power and authority of Augustus. Unquote. And Augustus, who influenced history for 1,500 years after his death, is the historical narrative that is to be dispensed with for the more politically correct histories of critical theory. And Augustus possessed five attributes that any person, politician, painter, or project manager could learn from. Augustus knew how to choose his allies. He understood his situation and its limitations. He was clear about his goals. He checked his ego at the door, and he exploited his advantages. So any human being facing significant challenges in their life, and we all do, could either wallow in the stew of victimhood and grievance studies, or they could learn from this guy. Augustus encountered many threats during his rise to power and the subsequent 44 years of his rule. At first, Cassius and Brutus, the murderers of Julius Caesar, would have been among his enemies. Then Pompey, the great son, Sextus, could have toppled him. Mark Antony and Cleopatra are among the most famous of his foes. But Roman history proved that often the real threat was not some far distant adversary, but the person standing just behind the ruler. This was certainly the case with Julius Caesar. Cornelius Sulla was once Gaius Marius's loyal subordinate, but became his most obdurate enemy. Pompey was Julius Caesar's son-in-law. One of the greatest possible threats to Augustus was his own best friend, Marcus Agrippa. But throughout their long relationship, Agrippa did not perceive his removing Augustus. He was steadfast throughout the long years that the two men spent together. Lindsay Powell, writer of Marcus Agrippa, right-hand man of Caesar Augustus, states, quote, Agrippa was a remarkable and multifaceted man who complicated his friend in age, outlook, personality, and skills. He was a talented general on land and a fine admiral at sea, a pragmatic diplomat, a hardworking public official, a generous philanthropist, and the most loyal of friends. He was Augustus's go-to guy, the man the boss turned to whenever he needed a difficult job done, beating tough guerrillas in northern Spain or fixing creaking sewers in Rome. There were many times, many times when he could have challenged Augustus and usurped power for himself, yet he did not. Unquote. Other unwavering allies of Augustus included Gaius Messanius and Quintus Salvadanius Rufus. And next to Agrippa, Augustus had his wife Livia. And regardless of what historical fiction writers such as Robert Graves have done to her reputation, or that of the Roman historian Tacitus, she was steadfast in support of her husband. Matthew Dennison, Livia's biographer, uncovers a woman of strong ambition and an acute sense of politics, 
but not quite the murderous harridan of Tacitus perpetually poisoning half a score of her son's rivals. Augustus knew how to choose the right people and knew how to use them. And this was not as exploitive as it sounds. In the case of Agrippa, he was not from a prominent Roman family, and despite his many talents, would likely not have risen to his heights without his patron. Augustus always looked at his situation with remarkably clear-eyed objectivity. It was not that he lacked vision or ambition, just that he saw the situation with utmost clarity. For example, before taking on Brutus and Cassius, Augustus, or Octavian, as Augustus was known before 27 BCE, fought a brief, indecisive war with Mark Antony. Instead of continuing the fighting, Octavian instead put aside his animosity and allied with his rival. Without Antony, the decisive battle of Philippi might have gone against Octavian. Once Brutus and Cassius were dealt with, Antony held more power than Octavian, limiting his choices. Octavian also had to deal with Sextus Pompey before going against Antony. Octavian bided his time, waited until he would gain preeminence over both his rivals. This took over 10 years that divided Philippi and Octavian, well, really Agrippa's triumph, at Actium. In other words, understanding his situation, he knew that he needed to bide his time and take advantage of opportunities as they were given. Augustus was almost always clear about his goals. In 44 BC, upon the death of his great-uncle Julius Caesar, he could have abrogated the part of Caesar's will and lived a quieter life. But at the age of 19, 19, he took up his patrimony, which included Caesar formally adopting him as his son and heir, and began his pursuit of power. Did Octavian at that point dream of the ultimate power that would take him 13 years to realize? As the, quote, son, unquote, of the most remarkable Roman up to that time and dictator for life upon his murder, Octavian knew that throwing himself into the game of power would only lead to two possible outcomes. In the seminal miniseries, Game of Thrones, one of the characters states, you either win the Game of Thrones or you end up dead. The same was exactly the case for the civil wars at this time in Roman history. Therefore, Octavian had those two choices win supreme power, or end up dead. Yet, instead of remaining in Macedonia with elements of an army that Julius Caesar had assembled for an invasion of Parthia, Octavian arrived in Italy to ascertain what could be accomplished and found a group of Romans concerned about Mark Antony's rise after Caesar's death. After a warm welcome by Caesar's own soldiers in the southern Italian port of Brindisium, Octavian demanded a portion of the funds that were allotted by Caesar's for the intended war against the Parthian Empire in the Middle East. This was actually the war chest and act for the war against the Parthian Empire, and Octavian took it. This loot amounted to 700 million sesterces stored within Brindisium, the staging ground in Italy for those military operations in the East. Octavian then used this money to pay off the troops and, in effect, create his own army. Once this was done, as his great uncle, nay father, would have famously said, the die was cast. A few words about names and ego. During Octavian's career, he assumed Julius Caesar's name. We call him Octavian prior to 27 BC, the year that he took on the title of Augustus. But Octavian did not actually go by the name of Octavian. He instead preferred to be called Gaius Julius Caesar Filius, 
or essentially Julius Caesar Jr. He did this partly out of pride, but he also did this partly out of the power of associating himself with such a name. And it was in 27 BC that he took on the name of Augustus and even had the month of Sextilius renamed after himself. Today, the dog days of summer and the kids going back to school occur in August, a Roman name, as all of our months are named after Roman uh, terminology. All this shows Octavian was not a man without ego. But, and this is the critical part, he used that ego to the service of his goals. In a meeting near Bologna in October 43 BCE, Octavian, Antony, and a man named Lepidus formed the Second Triumvirate, knowing Augustus's later attitude, claiming Antony as an equal must have stung. But it was the necessary move, given the threats posed by Caesar's murderers, Brutus and Cassius. Octavian also made accommodations with Sextus, the son of the rival of Julius Caesar, the son of the rival of his father. This, too, must have hurt but Octavian did so because he knew something very important. He knew that in the end, ego is best served by not being known as the winner, but by actually being the winner. 2,000 years after the death of Augustus, we know all about Messianus and his incredibly valuable patronage of Virgil and Horace. We know about Agrippa, everything from his victory at Actium to his famous baths. We know about Livia, who is known as the mother of her country. Agrippa and Massinus both died before Augustus did. And Augustus, a master of propaganda, this was shown by his management of Antony and Cleopatra, could have changed some of their narratives. Perhaps he could have downplayed Agrippa's role at Actium, making him the admiral, making him the architect of his most ultimate victory. But Augustus chose not to do so because the man with the real power does not need to prove it. During the final five years of Julius Caesar's life, he spent very little time in Rome. For years before Actium, Octavian was omnipresent in Rome, soliciting the support of Rome's nobility. After Philippi, Antony had the help of his fellow nobles, but by the time of Actium, nearly ten years later, it was Octavian who was well positioned. The East was always the most prominent source of wealth within the Roman Empire, both at the time of Augustus and many years later centuries later, really. So Antony wanted that peace. He wanted to be in the East. Octavian, however, took advantage of his position within the capital itself. Augustus, Octavian, took advantage of Caesar's adoption by later having his great uncle deified. Think about that. By becoming his son in his will, this deification benefited by making him, Octavian, the son of a god. Learning from his great uncle's mistakes, well, as later his father, Augustus never had himself made dictator, and when he held provinces, he was careful to keep them limited. Yet, these same provinces, including the three he took as direct governor, Hispania, Gaul, and Syria, contained the majority of the legions. He also continually held the tribuneship, which in the later years of the Republic had two essential functions, the introduction of legislation and the ability to veto other proposals. With this one office, which was traditionally linked back to the beginning of the Republic, he could essentially control all legislation. Everyone knew he had the power, but he did not rub it in the noses of the nobility. Of course, it helped that many of the most prominent families, such as the Marcelli, 
the Metellii, and the Hennebiberi were decimated and extinct. Given this, Augustus might have made himself more than first citizen, more than Augustus, but that was not politic. From Augustus, we learn the value of having real friends and supporters about us. We can ascertain that being ruled by ego and not by obvious circumstances is the road to failure. We can know that seeing situations clearly and taking advantages of opportunities that are given can lead to prosperity. All of this from a study of a compelling historical figure. So why do we read and write history? As I have argued several times, one of history's primary uses is to provide a narrative to support political positions. This is the primary reason for the new critical theory and the concept behind the 1619 Project. Before the progressive historians, history could be, and still sometimes is, used to extol a particular nation's values and virtues. Now, given the United States and its inherent greatness, this use of history is a righteous purpose, and it does not remove the concept of narrative. Rather, with figures such as George Washington and Abraham Lincoln, the narrative that shapes our history is supported by genuinely great people. Another reason we read history is the stories of humanity are infinitely fascinating. One of the most popular movies of all time is The Godfather. But what is that against the real-life historical epics of Charles Luciano, Frank Costello, Meyer Lansky, and Benjamin Siegel? It is always fun to note of the Godfather movies that Mo Green and Hyman Roth are based very closely on real historical figures. Narratives from Tsar Peter the Great to the introduction in China of block printing are always fascinating. But another reason we read history is to learn. To dispense with the likes of Augustus is to deny an incredible opportunity to improve our understanding of history our politics, and our personal lives. I hope you have enjoyed this podcast from The Conservative Historian. Please look for other podcasts and information at www.conservativehistorian.com. This is Bell Avis. Thank you for listening.